John 7, 25 to 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. If you go down the stairs at 120th Street and Riverside Drive, there's a long field, a grassy field, and that can be a very nice place to have a picnic or to sit outside on a warm day. You don't want to go there after it rains, however. Maybe that should be obvious that if it rains, a grassy field will become muddy. Uh, but there's something, something different about that particular area. If it, even if it rains really hard, if you go to Morningside Park or Central Park and there's some puddles and some floods, uh, usually within a day or two, the puddles are gone. There's something about that grassy field on Riverside Drive that the puddles could stay there for a week or two. And that's strange. Now, it's Riverside Drive. It's right by the river. So, so maybe you would think, well, there's all that water uh, coming in from underneath. But actually, that's not the issue. The issue is that field sits atop a train tunnel. The Amtrak train goes underneath. And so there's this hard layer of whatever it is, concrete or metal, I don't know, and then a grassy field above it. And so 
It's quite nice. Uh, the grass is there, and it's uh, because grass doesn't need deep roots. It's able to uh, to thrive there. But when it rains, that area does not absorb water, and occasionally, that becomes an issue. Um, giving that description, uh, there's an analogy there between how the Bible describes the human condition. Um, so when we talk about how human beings are separated from God, one of the things that the Bible tells us is human beings are made in God's image. And there's something there that when we see God, uh, something inside of us is supposed to reflect something of his greatness, but the problem is we don't see God. Um, sometimes the language of hard hearts is used to describe things. It's like there's this layer over us that keeps God from really coming into our lives and yet there's a hollowness inside where, where we want something <laughs> to fill it. And uh, what happens is uh, we then have this experience of these longings that are dissatisfied, this emptiness, this meaninglessness. And some of us say uh, it should be filled by God, uh, but yet our religious pursuits don't really satisfy. And other people say, well, it needs to be filled by something. And we're trying to take things into our lives, but kind of like the water uh, on Riverside Drive, you can take in whatever it is, you could keep shopping or you could keep achieving or you could keep smoking weed or you could uh, keep working, whatever it is that you feel like this is gonna bring me some sort of peace, some sort of fulfillment, and uh, it never makes its way in. And then eventually, if you keep trying, it eventually uh, starts to flood the area. Jesus, in the passage we're looking at, invites us to come to him. And, and what we're seeing throughout John's gospel is he keeps saying, believe in me and through faith in me you will have life but in each particular situation that we read about there's different imagery different ways of helping us to understand that so today he's at this feast the feast of tabernacles where on the last day in the temple uh, the priests would take water and be pouring that out and presumably around the same time he stands up and he says if anyone thirsts come to me and the image of, of thirsting, I think, right away is clear enough for how some of us experience life. Um, we want more. We're tired. We're parched. Uh, the promise that Jesus says, if you believe in me, it's as though rivers of living water will, will flow within your heart. It sounds like he's promising what most of us are looking for. And yet, it can feel so elusive, so difficult. And so what I want to talk about today from this passage, using this, the thirsting, the water imagery, uh, just three different things, thirst, quenching, and hydration. So I'm just going to kind of work the imagery out. Uh, but I want to begin with thirst. I've already started talking about that. So there is something in each of us, there's a hollowness and emptiness. Now we're wired differently, so some of you experience it as having no meaning. Some of you experiencing it as a feeling of anxiety. Some of it feels uh, like you have no energy, but there's something in every human being that longs for more and says something's not right. Um, and what we see is that that, uh, that experience and are trying to work that out together can be quite confusing. Trying to make sense of that, how do we solve that? And, and in the situation that we read about with Jesus, his situation was a confusing situation as well. Now, on a socio-political level, and I won't get into that, it was quite a difficult period of time. They're under Roman occupation. There are these various parties within the nation that had different views on what should be done. And so, so this is already a complicated situation. 
But Jesus comes into it in order to call people to himself, in order to teach the truth. And there's sufficient confusion that there's constant debates. People have different opinions about who he is and what he's, what he's teaching. If you go to Colossians 1, that's a New Testament book, it talks about all things being, uh, all things holding together in Jesus. And that vision is cosmic, which is to say somehow there's something about Jesus that holds everything together. But certainly it's something Jesus says is true of the scriptures. So if you go to Luke 24, after his resurrection, it says he opened their eyes to understand the scripture, how everything in it was pointing to him. Um, His fulfillment, he brings out the fullness, the coherence. Without him as the climax of the Bible, the Bible doesn't really make sense. And and you're seeing that with the very people who are grappling with the Bible and trying to seek God, but there's confusion, there's division. So in verse 27, uh, one of the things that's said is, we know where this man comes from, presumably Galilee, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So, so what do we do about that? Had, doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to know that where the, uh, the Messiah comes from, from Bethlehem? Well, actually, no, the Bible seems to assume this messianic figure will appear and nobody's going to know where he comes from. So, so what do we do with that? We know where he comes from. But then there's a debate about where he comes from, verses 40 uh, to 42. Uh, the leaders, when they heard this word, some of the people, uh, not just the leaders, but some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said... Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. And it leads, a couple of elements of the division is, on the one hand, if we know where he comes from, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem, but it looks like he comes from Galilee. On the other hand, we're not supposed to know where he comes from, and we do know where he comes from. And so there are these various pieces that, that they can't make sense of. And the interesting thing is, if you know the story of the Bible, it's sort of actually all of that is true. Matthew records for us that though uh, Jesus's mother and presumed father Joseph lived in the northern region of Galilee, um, they were from Bethlehem of Judea. And so the opening of the New Testament, those famous Christmas stories about his family traveling, so he's actually born in Bethlehem, grows up in Galilee. Um, and, and yet, Jesus here doesn't make sort of the historical biographical argument. He doesn't come in and say, let me clarify for you whether or not I come from Bethlehem or from Galilee. Uh, John is presenting that the issue is not so much where they think he comes from, but that issue that actually all of this is true because he does come from Galilee. He does come from Bethlehem in a sense, but ultimately part of the problem is no one here really knows where he comes from. And so in verses 33 and 34, Jesus says to them, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. So that's the claim of John one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Um, Jesus described as the word uh, with God. He he um, existed before he was born on earth. And so in verse 34, he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. And here's this issue is, I have come from a place that you don't see, you don't understand, you don't have access to. That's my claim. It's not uh, clarifying whether or not I'm from Galilee or from Bethlehem is not the most fundamental issue. The more fundamental issue is you don't know where I, I have come from 
And the problem is you cannot go where I'm going. That's why my being with you is so crucial. I'm coming to announce the way of God and to invite you to follow me. And if you trust me and follow me, you can go where I'm going. If you think you know me based on your misunderstanding of how you're putting the pieces together, well, then once I'm gone, you are without hope. You cannot just go where I'm going. I need to bring you there. And so the claim that John is making is much more profound that this confusion is understandable because it's not simply his biography that they need to put together and how he's bringing the scriptures together. But there's something deeper and more profound that we don't have access to. And that's why what he's doing is so good, but also so difficult to understand. And so what happens with these thirsty people who are clearly interested in what he's saying, is this the one? They've been hoping, will God one day send somebody who will satisfy us? And then he arrives and they don't know how to make sense of it. What's interesting is one of the responses in the confusion is anger, hostility. It's not simply that they say, we don't, this doesn't make sense, teach us more. But in the, in the effort to control what's going on, the religious leaders start to get upset. We're losing our unity. We, we need to stick with the plan. And uh, if this guy is going to start to lead us astray, instead of following him where he promises to lead us, we better get rid of him. So in verse um, uh, 47, the Pharisees speaking to the crowds, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And there's hints of the arrogance of the leadership in this, who uh, Jesus has criticized in various ways about their hypocrisy, about how they love to be seen, all of these things. And, and, and here they're, they're mocking him. He's from Galilee, as if, you know, from saying, you know, in whatever region, uh, I won't plug in actual examples, but any place would find somebody from a certain place as not worthy of being taken seriously. And so there they are in Jerusalem. Isn't he from Galilee? But here they are, the way they speak to, about their own people, this crowd that does not know the law. They're going to come to us, and they're going to say, well, actually, this guy is doing such works. Maybe this is the one sent. <laughs> you ignorant people. You do not know the law. So don't come and try to make an argument for us. None of us believes this, which ironically is not true. But that's the, the level at which the conversation is happening. So in verse 28, Jesus proclaims as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, ironically said. They don't know him. They don't know where he's come from. He says, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So here they're having this debate, and the, teacher of the teachers of the law say, look at this crowd that does not know the law. And Jesus goes back to the leaders and says, look at you who does not know the Father. And because you don't know the Father, you are misunderstanding and misreading the law. And he's been saying this all throughout the gospel. If you knew God, you would recognize his voice in me. But you don't know me. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know the Father. And therefore, you do not know the law. You're relating to the law as though it's an impersonal set of rules. And therefore, instead of giving you life as the law by God's design was intended to do, it's taking life from you. 
It's leading to confusion. You're angry, you're hostile. And now that I'm here, you're plotting to kill me. And so the leaders are saying the crowd are a bunch of fools because they don't know the law. Jesus is saying, you are in great danger because you don't know God. And therefore, the knowledge you have of the law is an incorrect knowledge. It's leading further through the hardness of your hearts to your anger, to these divisions. You're not leading people to God. But I have come uh, so that you might be led to God. And it's that problem that we're all prone to of this impersonal universe, the idea that because we don't know God, who created us, who provides for us, who invites us to walk with him, then there's something of that emptiness in him where we relate to the world as though it's just a grand machine with things to use, with tools, things to experience, uh, but, but without life. And here, even in the first century, you know, it's interesting, the, the New Testament nowhere says that there's a problem with the law, or there's a problem with Jewish people, or there's a problem with Moses. It's saying, the, the problem is this alienation from God that's leading to confusion about all of these things. So even if you have the law that God gave you, it's not giving you life because you're relating to commandments rather than relating to God. And modern people who may not have the law of Moses but have their ethics or have their goals or have whatever it is we do to keep us busy, find ourselves as well saying, I'm going after these things hoping that they will give life and yet they're not satisfying me. And Jesus is saying, the scriptures are misunderstood. You are misunderstood. Life is misunderstood. I'm coming to call those who are thirsty. If you come to me and believe in me, you will actually see that uh, these things start to change. And so it's interesting. Jesus comes into a situation where there's high control. You have, you have the religious leaders, the passage we looked at last week, people privately are debating about whether or not they believe in Jesus, but it says nobody wanted to talk openly because of fear. So they're afraid to say what they think. That's not a healthy environment to be in. So the religious leaders, then their response to the crowds that they look down on is, have any of the Pharisees believed? That's their evidence. None of us who know the law believe. And then verse 50, Nicodemus. Everyone's always trying to silence Nicodemus. So. <laughs> so verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So, so we've met Nicodemus before, John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus, and, and, the, and, and the description is he comes by night, which sounds like it's not important, except we hear about Nicodemus one more time, which is in John 19. And in John 19, it says, and then Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. So his coming at night seems to be an important part of the story. Nicodemus also does not want to be open. He doesn't want to be seen going to Jesus, but he comes in John 3 with a genuine curiosity. Surely no person could be doing the things you were doing if God were not with him. That's what Nicodemus says, and Jesus says, well, great, but unless you were born from above, unless the Spirit opened your eyes, you cannot even see the kingdom. That's his response. But here's Nicodemus as a, as a figure of somebody who actually recognizes that, that Jesus is uh, showing some evidence of being the kind of person that's fulfilling scripture. And Nicodemus is somebody here that is properly in this situation applying the law. You have the religious leaders that are saying, look at this crowd who does not know the law. They are accursed. 
And Nicodemus comes in and he says, but doesn't the law say, and he properly applies the law to give a hearing so that God could be heard, even if he doesn't at this point really fully understand. Which my, am, am I sticking with this mic? No, all right. I'll just stick with this for the rest of the time. Let me know if I need to bring it closer to my mouth. So here you have a situation where um, there's confusion, people not speaking openly, and it's so obvious to so many people that this person is coming in fulfillment of scripture. And yet there's such anger and hostility that people are not allowed to talk openly about it. And what Jesus says in the midst of this is, but, but if you're willing to hear and see, uh, I will give you life. What's interesting about this figure, Nicodemus, uh, the next and last time we hear about him is in John 19. We hear somebody who has been uh, secretly trying to make sure that people didn't necessarily know that he actually thought that Jesus might be the Messiah. He goes, along with Joseph of Arimathea, uh, to take Jesus down from the cross. And here's a man in that generation, faithful to the law, to make sure Jewish, uh, Jesus got a proper Jewish burial. And so, so they're wrong. It's not that nobody understands. It's not that the scriptures don't testify. Um, Nic Nicodemus himself, we don't know ultimately what he thought or he believed, but he showed uh, even in, in, a, in that place where there was much hypocrisy, there was somebody who really sought God, uh, who really wanted to listen to Jesus and was willing to stand out and be a bit different. And that is encouraging for us because as we look at our own thirst, um, all of us have to grapple with the fact that there are things that don't make sense and we have fear and we have fear of what people will think about us. And there are all these things that keep us from recognizing the reality of what God is trying to show us. And even in this situation where it seems like there's such hostility that they're plotting to kill Jesus and what they're saying is nobody believes, nobody who really understands the law would believe, and yet it's not true. And that's actually encouraging for those of us who are hoping that actually maybe God is going to satisfy our thirst. In the midst of our confusion, uh, God is able to distill uh, or to dispel uh, the various confusing things, but it requires our trusting Jesus enough to draw near and believe that he can satisfy our thirst. So that's what I wanna talk about next, that Jesus says that he quenches our thirst. So we have this thirst in us. And for some of you, you may not realize that the thirst is, is um, the things you're longing for ultimately have their satisfaction in God. But I suspect all of us should recognize there's something of longing in us. What Jesus is saying is if you trust me, you will find that the life that you're looking for can be given to you by me, but you'll need to trust me. And so that quenching of thirst, the idea that um, we're really longing for something that Jesus says, I have come to give it to you. Um, in verse 25, uh, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So, so, they already are seeing that somehow Jesus is coming and he's talking about life and he's showing these signs of the power of God and he's teaching with great wisdom. And for some reason, rather than it's stirring great excitement, it's, uh, it's exposing hostility. And they're saying, and yet everyone is having these secret conversations, but here's Jesus who's 
being open. <laughs> That's one of the things that makes him different uh, than the other uh, various leaders and uh, gurus. Uh, he's speaking openly, he's speaking transparently, and yet about things that we don't understand. And so in uh, one of the responses we have is not simply to ignore him or to reject him, but to hate him so much that we want to kill him. So in verse 30, it says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And that's, what's, uh, that's what John is showing us as the tension is building. The more Jesus shows about God wanting to give us life, the more it's stirring a hostile response, which is strange. Why would we be hostile towards the one who would give us life? And yet that's the problem of the biblical picture, that there's this emptiness, this hollowness that, that should uh, cause us to run to God for comfort. And yet there's something that keeps us from doing so. So we keep him away, or if he draws near, there's this hostility. So Jesus tells parables like uh, a landowner who uh, sends servants and, and the, the people that are the tenants reject the servants. And finally he sends his son and they plot to kill him. That's what Jesus is saying is in the history of God and his people sending prophets who announce God and yet they've always been pushed away. And now Jesus comes and they don't simply push him away, but they wanna seize him to kill him. And so here's what we see is, is going on in a deep and a profound way, the story of scripture, the story of humanity coming together through this person that we know where he comes from and we don't know where he comes from. He's a human being born to a family in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, but he's also the very son of God who comes from the father. And somehow this unique reality is gonna create the possibility that that division between humanity and God can uniquely be addressed by this one unique person who comes representing humanity, representing God, and comes to, to take away this division. And so you could see even the fulfillment here in verse 49, when, when the religious leaders um, speak arrogantly about the crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's the problem. If you uh, misunderstand the law or don't keep the law, there's a curse for breaking it. And so he's saying this crowd is accursed. Imagine the leaders who are responsible for teaching the crowd instead of saying, well, is there something with us that we're not teaching the law properly? Is there something about our mediation in the temple that is not keeping these people from being cursed? Instead, they protect themselves and they announce that the crowd is cursed. The crowd is the people. Jesus comes on behalf of the people to offer life to the people. And then he says to the leaders, you do not know me, you do not know the Father. And by implication, you do not know the law, um, but, but instead you are seeking to kill and reject me. And, the, and the, the plan of God being realized in that moment that through his rejection, Jesus will actually take away that layer dividing God and humanity, that we, we cast our hostilities upon him and treat him as though he was the lawbreaker. And, and he gets crucified and nailed to a cross as though he's the one that's bearing the curse, as though he broke the law. But what Jesus is saying is, I've come uh, on behalf of these accursed people, not to cast my blame on them, but actually to take and bear the curse on their behalf. And so the, the story of, of John, as he, as he tells it, is that he comes to those who are thirsty and he wants to give them life, but he does so by giving his own life. And so you look at themes in John about water and blood. The first sign in Galilee is there's a wedding where they run out of wine. 
and he takes water and he turns it into wine. <laughs> Uh, here, here's when the Messiah comes, there will be this abundance, this fruitfulness. And so, so Jesus is the one that, that provides all of this wine. And yet in John 19, he's the one who says, I thirst, and in his thirst, they give him sour wine to drink. And then he gives up his spirit. And the picture of Jesus is the one who comes and he thirsts, and he experiences the bitterness, and he gives up his spirit, because he's the one who will send the spirit and bring life to you and will bear that curse so the bitterness of your life is removed. And so there's this odd detail in John 19 as he hangs from the cross, they poke him with the spear and it says water and blood come from his side. Um, and, and there it is, this water that cleanses. Jesus has done something that's actually gonna cleanse us, but there's the blood, his own life that's given on our behalf. And what's interesting is he commands two signs for the church. Join my people through baptism, a sign of cleansing, a sign of the pouring out of the Spirit. And don't forget when you gather the new covenant in my blood. Drink in remembrance of me. And so, so Jesus is doing something to say, because I have come, I will, I will bear this curse and give up my life so that you will receive the blessing of God and that you will have life in him. That is where we are satisfied. So in verse 37, he says, on the last day of this feast, so he's fulfilling scripture, even the Feast of Tabernacles, has its realization in him. On that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what is the qualification that Jesus has? Once you've uh, come to me with all of your water and I will give you a straw, uh, come to me with all of your perfection, and I will evaluate whether or not you are worthy to receive life. And the qualification Jesus has is, are you thirsty? Because he's talking to people that are so hard of heart that they're not able to see that he's offering them a life. And so instead, they're arguing with him so he could reject them. And Jesus says, but those of you who really realize you need something that maybe only God can give you, uh, you don't need to get your life together. You don't need to be perfect. I will take care of those things for you. But are you thirsty? <laughs> Is there a longing that you have and are you willing to trust that I can satisfy it? Well, then come. That's all the qualification you need. You don't need to get your life together. You don't need to understand everything. You don't need to be perfect. You need to be thirsty and you need to believe that when I say I will give you life, uh, if I gave my life for you, uh, that I will fulfill what I promise. And so he talks about this spirit that he will give. And verse 39, he says, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus will suffer first humiliation, and then he will be glorified. John is not saying the Spirit did not yet exist, because we meet the Spirit of God in the very opening of the Bible. In Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of creation. But in the Old Covenant, the Spirit is present with God, with God's people behind the curtain in the tabernacle or in the temple or through special visitations where God's spirit would empower a leader to deliver God's people. But there was always a distance between God's people and God that the spirit was mediated somehow. And Jesus is saying, now the time has come where I'm uh, breaking through that hard surface of your heart. I'm tearing the temple in two. I'm opening the way so that God will come and dwell not simply in the midst of his people, but in his people. And so that's what he's saying, the thing that you're longing for, I am going to make possible so that God can now be with you. I will cleanse you from the sin 
that keeps God out, and I will open the way so God's love can be poured into your life. And so um, to understand the nature of God in Christianity is, is quite complicated, that we're monotheists, and yet we believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they work together in terms of it's the Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead, and it's the Son and the Father who pours the Spirit out. And so if you're looking to study about the Trinity and how it works, it's quite complex. For simplicity today, though, and I just want to be clear that I'm, I'm trying to be simple to leaving you with something practical, um, we need both the work of the Son who sheds his blood and brings forgiveness of sins to, to take away that hardened layer that keeps God out, and we need the work of the Spirit who comes in and renews and regenerates and gives life. We need both of those for continued life of faith and grace. So it's not simply that um, Jesus makes that, that it possible to go from not believing to believing, but in the process of life with him of believing, uh, there's a, the process of being changed from the old person with the old habits, the old rituals, the old expectations, the old voices, to the new person. And both of these pieces are important. Jesus, who loved us enough that he gave himself so that we know that God is gracious, God is generous, and the life-giving spirit that now gives you something new to live for. The reason both are needed is because um, in the ongoing living of life, we still have those old patterns, those old habits, those old, those old fears, the critical voice that's been with us all of our lives that still is there. What we need constantly is to remember the grace of Jesus Christ. God is merciful. He loved us enough that he gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. We never mature out of that. We need to constantly go back to that. So as you're trying to live by the spirit to live the fullness of that life, and then you find yourself saying, but I'm too weak. I'm not good enough. I don't feel like I belong among these people that seem better than me. You constantly need, it's always been by grace. It's, this, it's God's gracious work. It's the life he gave for you that gives you life. And so don't get stuck in those old patterns and ways. Those are not defining. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking, I'll never change. This is just fundamentally who I am. And the gospel says, that's who you were. So don't get stuck in the lie that you can never grow, that there's no hope. And so we constantly need to be able to go back where we get discouraged and say, but I don't feel worthy. I don't feel like I'm changing. To know that the gospel is always beginning with grace, but it was never about your being worthy. It was about you being thirsty. So if you're discouraged, don't try to get your life together and come back to God, but always know that it's in that thirst that we come to God by faith and say, Lord, um, satisfy me. And then that spirit that he puts into our life to empower you, to give you strength and energy so you can live differently. So you can live a life that has meaning and purpose. So you can do things that are valuable. But we live in that tension of our imperfect selves trying to grow. And so we need to remember that God is continually gracious with us in our imperfection. But God has so much more for us. So he gives us that spirit to empower us, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to have fruitful lives. And so to go back to our Riverside Drive analogy, um, as long as that hard layer is there, the puddles are always going to form. Um, but if you could break through that layer, what's interesting on the, on the Amtrak is occasionally there's a grate uh, that lets light into the tunnel underneath, but also lets water through. There's no puddle over the grate. There's a way through. Um, some of us find that, that we lack the faith to really trust that God can satisfy us. And so we have this dual existence of I'm, I have a religious compartment to my life, but I'm going to seek to satisfy these longings and the things that I've always 
seem to satisfy them. And, and it could just be shopping, hoping the next thing that you buy will be satisfying. It could be just more hours at work if I could just focus there, because this is a place where I feel like I'm accomplishing things. Um, in our anxiety, we, we try to manage our emptiness. Um, but what happens is we're, we're never really addressing the deep need. And so take something like alcohol. Okay, Jesus turned water into wine. A Christian could have a glass of wine, uh, alcohol as a beverage. Uh, even though uh, H2O is fundamentally what you need, the taste of the beverage is fine. Um, but at some point, we start to look for it not because of the, the H2O or the taste, but because of the effect that it has on us in that emptiness. It makes it feel like my problems are going away for a period. But it's like that puddle on Riverside Drive. The, the alcohol is not addressing your deepest need. It's not filling your emptiness. It's making you not feel it for a period. And to a certain degree, your, your life can absorb it, <laughs> just like that whatever five feet of grass could absorb a bit of rain. But at some point, uh, you start to get saturated. It's not making its way down. It's now making its way out. It's killing the grass and the life on the outside. It's becoming more evident to people around you. That's the problem that, that few of us have the strength in ourselves to say, you know what? I'm really going to trust that God will satisfy this emptiness and I'm going to, I'm going to live by that way. We're always looking for something else that's, that's quicker, that's more satisfying. Even if we know long-term, all I'm doing is flooding my life with what's going to kill me. Um, it's that measure of faith where we say, I need both the ongoing grace of God who, who loves me, who forgives me, who bears patiently with me, but also the God who is with me and empowers me to change. Uh, it's that combination that we don't always know how to live by. So here's the last thing I'm going to talk about, hydration. So we're thirsty. Jesus promises to quench our thirst by giving us life. But what does a healthy life look like? And here I'm using the hydration analogy, which is that all of us need water. And um, uh, for many of us, the habit, and because our bodies work that way, if you need water, you'll feel thirsty, and then you'll drink. And that's mostly fine, except by the time you feel thirsty, maybe it's a little bit later than, than you should have. It's probably a, a better practice to be proactive. I'm not now giving you health advice. You do whatever you like with liquids. But I sort of feel like when I, when I wake up in the morning, I just know it's been however many hours since I had anything to drink. So whether or not I'm thirsty, I just drink water. And then a couple hours later, I realize it's been a couple of hours later, and I drink water. And the importance of staying hydrated is not to wait until I feel the thirst, but to be proactive to understand that my body needs water, and so I will uh, take water in. Uh, using this analogy, some of us in our um, lives, we wait till we're thirsty to turn to God. Um, God is sort of not there. God is not relevant. And it's that trigger that says, oh boy, now I'm discouraged. Now I'm failing. Now I'm in over my head. I'm going to turn to God. And God is kind, and God is gracious, and God will meet us there. But if you want a, a healthier, more consistent spiritual life, don't just wait until you feel the need for God, but believe that God is actually uh, what you actually need. And therefore, when you wake up in the morning, start with prayer. <laughs> Read your Bible. Uh, throughout the day, be mindful that you are walking with God, the God who has loved you, the God who is with you, and the God who will work uh, out into the whole of your life to bring renewal. Don't just wait until you're stuck to call on him but proactively live a healthy spiritual life. And, and therefore, I think people that are used to the ups and downs in life are looking for a very dramatic form of Christianity. The God that when we're desperate calls out and does a miracle. Um, for most of life, it's much simpler. 
Just believe the gospel, read the Bible, pray, be faithful. And there's a a maintenance there, a a spiritual health where you'll grow and you'll be changed over time in non-dramatic ways. Now, the reality is um, sometimes we do need those dramatic moments. And so uh, even if you wake up in the morning and you drink water and you have your certain habits, then you travel to to a different altitude and it's hot, or you're competing in something athletic, or you're sick and all of a sudden your fluids needs change. And so if you have a virus and you're vomiting, now you need liquids more than ever but you can't just drink eight ounces to replace what just came out. Um, So it's this challenge. What do I do in this situation that now I really need the liquid, but I can't have it? Well, what is the strategy of of taking slow slips over time? And it's that adaptability in, in life that the basic Christian life is believe the gospel, read the Bible, pray, be faithful. But all of us are gonna find ourselves in situations where where something goes wrong and that doesn't work. And therefore, there needs to be that adaptability that, that maybe, uh, maybe my expectation that I would spend a half hour every morning in the Bible, right now I'm, I'm too confused, I can't do it. So do I give up on God? No, I, I need to adapt. I know I still need God more than anything. But what does it look like, uh, given what I'm going through, that it feels like the Spirit has gone out from me to, to bring the Spirit back into my life? Well, you have that season of needing to, uh, to drink from God's Spirit in a different way or those people that in an athletic way that you realize I need to be even more proactive in what I'm doing to prepare for this harder thing. Maybe some of you face a situation in life that you're like, you know, the normal maintenance things are not enough. I maybe need to take a day or two. I'm making such a big decision that maybe it's worth uh, putting in the calendar a few hours to seek God in prayer and to really seek to be in the presence of God because I want to do something that um, I really need his help for. And so what I'm talking about, the ordinarily, ordinary healthy Christian life, uh, to make sure that we're not having the spiritual ups and downs is believe the gospel, read the Bible, pray, be faithful, walk mindful of God every day. But that doesn't mean that you won't at times have to adapt. There are some times that you're really going to need to double down on your devotional life. There are other times that you're going to be feeling a bit distant from the church, but you still need to somehow be engaging with God. But what Jesus says is, if you're thirsty, um, there's not a different place to go. Keep coming to me. And if you keep coming to me, um, I, will, I will satisfy you. I'm looking at the time. I'm just going to end there. But uh, let's continue to seek God and the strengthening of his spirit together. Let me pray. Our Father, all of us are here as thirsty people, even if we're experiencing that differently. Some of us may feel Uh, that the thirst was unsatisfied for such a long time that we're coming numb, desiring nothing. Uh, Some of us uh, are coming with great regrets, that we know that we keep trying to to fill some kind of emptiness in a way that's only making things worse. Uh, Some of us are coming, needing to adapt our routines, that whatever you've done in the past for us isn't working today. Lord, um, each of us are here at a different place, but we we all need what what you promise that you will give us by your grace. We need that Uh, removal of our sin and our cleansing. We need the barrier between uh, us and you broken. We need uh, your spirit to come into our lives to renew us uh, so that out of our hearts flow this living water into the whole of our lives. We need that thorough regeneration. And so, Lord, um, you tell us that you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it, so we ask for it today. We ask that you would work graciously and powerfully in our lives to transform, to renew, and to encourage us 
And Lord, as a community, we, we join together, especially with any in our midst who are really having a tough time, uh, who are believing, uh, who are having difficulty believing, who are having difficulty moving forward. Help us to know what it looks like to, to walk together through this, to encourage one another, uh, be at work, that uh, through this body, we would all be strengthened and built up. And uh, Lord, be present with us in all that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.